0: from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios at the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we delve into the invisible wounds caused by war and its aftermath. When we look at the concept of moral injury with Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock, co-founder of the Bright Divinity School program on soul repair, we talk about strategies and steps to heal those who feel that they have been shattered at the level of their conscience. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Dr. Brock is research professor and director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. With Gabriella Latini, she co-wrote the book Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, published by Beacon Press in 2012. Dr. Brock travels the country speaking and writing on the concept of moral injury and its repair. This fall, she helped organize the upcoming Pathways to Hope conference happening in Kansas City, Missouri, on October 28th through the 31st. She also is featured on a new CBS documentary, which will air October 4th. You can find out more about the conference and the documentary, as well as the work and writings of Dr. Brock, at our website, ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I'm wondering if we could start out by, by sort of getting a definition of what moral injury is.
1: Sure. Uh, moral injury is what happens to your sense of being a good and decent person when you're in circumstances that cause you to do things, witness things, or fail to do things that violate your core moral foundation. So war is an obvious experience where uh, lots of terrible things happen, much of it legal and authorized, but it still violates most of the kind of values people learn growing up, that you don't kill people and you don't do these things that become authorized in war. And some people handle that fine um, and can come to terms with it. Other people really feel terrible and um, suffer of an inner anguish that is really, really hard to come to terms with without a lot of support and friends and people who will go with you on a very long journey to recovery. It doesn't just happen in war. It can happen in natural disasters. It can happen in the kind of jobs where you have to make life or death decisions and you won't know the outcome till the decision is made. It's not something distinctive to war, but war has its own features in um, injuring people morally.
0: So when we're talking about this concept of moral injury, is this really just another word for post-traumatic stress disorder? Is that what we're talking about here?
1: No, no, and that's been part of the problem with veterans of war is that the VA clinical community realized five years ago that while they were getting better at trying to find different treatments for PTSD, there were, there was something else wrong, and they couldn't quite put their finger on it, but the treatments for PTSD weren't necessarily working. And that's when they got together and wrote this, a group of them wrote this essay on moral injury, which they said was distinctive from PTSD, but often occurs with it, so it's easy to get them confused. And the quickest way I can explain it is to say that PTSD is something that happens to you. It's a disaster or a a violence or some terrible thing that happens to you that triggers a very intense fear reaction. And what happens is that if it's intense enough or repeated enough, your fear systems sort of go in hyperdrive. So most of the... Responses of or uh, the symptoms of PTSD have to do with things that have to do with stress and fear. Moral injury is a, a kind of affliction of conscience that requires memory and thinking, because you're making moral judgments about yourself or about the conditions you have been in. And some of the feelings may look like PTSD, but they're based on moral judgments rather than on terror. And so moral injury is really something going on inside of you that you did or witnessed or failed to do. So I would say it's an act of personal agency in some form, a sense that you power in a way that makes you feel terrible about who you are as a human being.
0: If I'm hearing you correctly, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is uh, the result of of. sudden large or repeated number of of fear moments, and it almost creates, if I'm hearing you correctly, a physiological change in the person, in the person's body chemistry, um, and in the person's brain. So it's a physiological and a psychological effect. What I'm hearing you saying is that moral injury is not a physiological or a psychological effect. It has to do with the the moral status of the person, the, the way that the person understands their relationship to society and their relationship to other human beings socially. Am I hearing you correctly?
1: Uh, I, sort of. <laughs> it is true that PTSD is related to the flooding of your system with stress hormones. And those interfere with memory. They interfere with your ability to calm yourself down. And they can even interfere with the thinking brain. Uh, you can lose tissue, actually, in your cortex. Because your fear systems are overactivated. And it's insomnia, dissociative episodes where you relive an experience but you can't remember it exactly. Those things are all part of the symptom profile for PTSD. And it's, those things can be helped in different ways and there are different modalities, drugs, meditation, other, uh, you know, um, eye movement therapy. There are ways to help people get memory back, uh, and learn to calm down. Moral injury, you can have similar feelings that you can have with PTSD like anger or a depression. You can even have trouble sleeping because uh, what happened that you remember haunts you um, and it's hard to sleep. But moral injury has this thinking component of an evaluation of a judgment. It says You're, you're saying to yourself, You shouldn't have done this thing or you did this thing and now you're not a good person anymore. So you can feel depressed. You can feel angry. It can look something like PTSD. I think probably there are physiological changes also that come with thinking bad things about yourself. So I wouldn't want to create too hard a mind-body split with moral injury because I think what we think about actually does affect us physically, but but moral injury, you don't, you can't take a pill and make it go away. You can't stop judging yourself by having some therapeutic treatment process. You really actually have to go through a long, sustained thinking, rethinking, remembering, mulling, reflection process. So, I think the way I would describe it is that uh, PTSD is an emotional, psychological response to terrorizing conditions. Moral injury is a reflective, spiritual process.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. So this, this term, moral injury, is... Is attributed to a Marine veteran and a person who's described as both a soldier and a philosopher, uh, Camillo Mac Bica. And I'm wondering if you might take a moment and tell us about uh, Mac Bica and and how he developed this concept of moral injury.
1: First, I have to say that I think that's an error in our book. It's all over Repair. We had thought that Mac Bica had used the term in some of his war journals and poetry that he wrote when he was a marine captain in Vietnam. It's very powerful um, poetry about his own sense of having become the killing and lost himself and his soul in some ways in his war experience. And uh, when we double-checked it after the book got published because um, someone asked us about it, it turns out that it was probably used for the first time by Jonathan Shea, a VA psychiatrist, in his book Achilles in Vietnam. And so um Jonathan Shea is on our uh, the board of the Cell Repair Center for a lot of reasons, including his amazing work with Vietnam veterans. But he is probably the person who first put those two words, moral and injury, together in a term. But in his book, he describes it as a form of PTSD. I don't think he would necessarily do that today exactly, but uh, at the time, the only sort of framework the VA was working with was PTSD, and he saw it as especially the kind of outrage, even what he would call berserk rage, that a lot of Vietnam veterans felt about the failure of their government and the failure of their own officers in the field.
0: That's helpful. And thank you for that clarification. Um, So this has become, or it sounds like this has become a more common term. But have you encountered difficulty in having people understand these distinctions about moral injury when you've been dealing both with combat veterans and others that have encountered traumatic situations, but then also with those that might be treating them, the psychologists and the others? Has there been a difficulty in understanding the concept?
1: very difficult. Um, You can actually just do it with brain diagrams showing what parts of the brain tend to be uh, affected by PTSD and what parts of the brain actually need restoring before you can even have a memory and think about what happened to you. So I don't know that it's all that difficult to explain the difference. And we have plenty of VA clinicians and psychiatrists and people who come to our, our conferences that we do to learn more about moral injury itself because psychological training doesn't teach you what to do if someone says, I think God hates me, which is a theological statement actually. And so so I think that it's not that hard to explain the difference. What we have found, especially with veterans, is when you, you just start into this explaining what moral injury is before you even talk about how it's different from PTSD. You can see a light go on in their in their eyes and they'll say, oh, yeah, I've been diagnosed with PTSD, but that's not my problem. Moral injury is my problem. That's what's really bothering me. So we found that veterans themselves intuitively get it. It's not that hard to explain to them.
0: And so what I'm hearing is that part of your work is to equip people who have suffered moral injury with a vocabulary to talk about it. Is is that a fair assessment?
1: That is. It's It's also not just veterans. I think um, the struggles that they have with moral injury are completely understandable as normal human responses to extremity, to really difficult, morally ambiguous conditions. I think the problem is that when they come back to civilian society, most of us are so clueless, so inept at trying to understand what happened to them and unable to hear them, really, that they get isolated and they get treated as some kind of special needs population when in fact I think what their experiences is, is quite normal it's just that we don't uh really understand it and we don't know how to listen to what they're saying and they and we haven't earned the right to be trustworthy enough for them to speak to us so our mission is not doing treatment because um, I don't think the veterans are so much the problem as the rest of us.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock, Research Professor of Theology and Culture and founding co-director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're discussing the concept of moral injury and how consciences might be repaired after war. We'll be back in a moment. Two items for those of you who are listening on the podcast. The first is that if you're interested in more information about soul repair, we encourage you to check out the Pathways to Hope for Moral Injury and Other Invisible Wounds Conference, which is being held October 28th through 31st at the Unity Temple on the Plaza in Kansas City, Missouri. Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock and others will be there speaking about soul repair, moral injury, and the healing of invisible wounds. You can find out more at their website, soulrepair.org. Also, please keep listening after the end of the episode today because we're premiering a new short piece produced by our friend Katie Cloxon. She's been helping us think about how we might pilot a new show based more around stories and narrative and less around interviews. So this is a first run, and we'd love to hear what you think. Thanks. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Professor Brock is director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas, and we're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing. So when you say that the problem is the rest of us, it's not just a matter of equipping those that have been in combat situations with a new vocabulary to talk about their experience. But what I'm hearing you saying is that we also need to find ways as a society to equip ourselves to hear that experience in a more profound way. Is that correct?
1: I think that's right. I think uh, the society itself has a tendency to create uh, veterans as a special class of people in two directions. One is, oh, there are a bunch of heroes, wounded warriors and heroes, and there could be people that are to be admired for what they've done, or they're head cases. They're like really messed up and they need the VA to help them. And while it's true that PTSD benefits from treatment, uh, anyone under the circumstances of war probably would have some form of PTSD um, and probably some form of moral injuries. to, cr- to sort of siphon them off as if they were some kind of different kind of human being from the rest of us is very isolating. And uh, and that's what makes it difficult to talk about what happened is people say, well, thank you and call you a hero. How are you going to talk about something that you feel horrible about and that you don't think you're a hero at all? How do, How do you say that to somebody who's admiring you and wanting you to feel better because – They think that it helps to call you a hero. So I think that uh, we tend to stereotype veterans rather than regard them as a human being just like the rest of us, and that that creates this isolation where they don't really want to talk about it.
0: I'm fascinated by this. So in, in feminist discourse, you, you sometimes hear the critique that women are classified either as Madonna or whore, that there's a polarity there that doesn't allow the real lived experience of women to shine through. But instead, these polarized stereotypes are used for descriptions of the feminine. In what I'm hearing you saying, there's a similar stereotyped polarity in our descriptions of those that have gone to war, they're either heroes or they're head cases. And it creates a very difficult way of talking about the the actual lived experience of the individual. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think we, first of all, I don't know any normal human being who finds it simple or easy to talk to a stranger about the worst thing that ever happened to them. You talk about those things to your friends. You talk about those things to people who you have found trustworthy and will not judge you or condemn you but really want to understand you. And those are secrets and anguish and terrible things that I think we have to earn the right to hear. That means being trustworthy friends. Uh, it means not sitting there thinking about, well, what do you think about this and what's your opinion of this person, but really receiving in a heartfelt, open-hearted way, a person who is who is in a state of anguish, uh, in a, it ha- is suffering something that is that if you're human, I think you could understand, and listening to that, letting that person enter your own heart. And that process is a way of sharing a burden with someone that can help them struggle with it, which... They cannot do in isolation. The thing I know about moral injury is it's not a problem you can fix by yourself.
0: Part of what we're touching on in our conversation is this tension between the myths of the military character and the realities of military experience. Uh, When I was a child, I was part of a military family, and I have memories of going out with my friends with toy guns and playing war And I think that I valorized and idealized what I thought my father did. And as I grew older, I began to realize that there were some things that my father engaged in when he was in the Vietnam War that left severe scars on him. And I'm wondering about this tension between the myths of of the military character and the realities of military experience. In your work, Dr. Brock, how have you experienced the clash and the friction between those those two pieces of military psyche?
1: Well, I also grew up in a military family. Uh, my birth father, whom I didn't grow up with and didn't know till I was 33, actually served in Korea, which is when he left my mother and me in Japan. And she didn't hear from him for two years. So she actually met my stepfather and married him in Japan. And he had been a veteran of World War II, and was career military. So I grew up in an enlisted man's family in the U.S. Army, and he served two terms, two tours in Vietnam as a medic. When he came home from his second tour, he was very, very different from the father I grew up with. And I didn't really understand that, but I was estranged from him for eight years until he died. And understanding moral injury now, I have a sense of what he must have gone through that changed him so much when he came home, but I didn't. I don't know that I grew up myself in the military with much of a sense of anything in related relationship to war service or or, or military service. I think partly because I'm female, I didn't play with guns. We had never had guns in the house. It was just not part of the culture, even in my military family. I remember having to launder and starch and iron my dad's fatigues and things like that. So I think there's a gender split in growing up some, in some ways in the military. But So I didn't either think of the people in the military as heroes or as villains or any of those in, in those ways. I just knew that, you know, my mother had to cope alone when my father deployed and she learned to do things that she would never had to do before, and all of the rest of us adapted and worried about him. When I uh, went to college, it's the first time I encountered um, the politics of the War of Vietnam, and uh, and I was pretty quickly persuaded that it was a bad war. I, I saw what it had done to my father, and I don't know that that led me to any kind of generalization, but I... I began to understand something about the politics of the war. This was 1968. It had become unpopular. Uh, So I I actually entered college and became an anti-war activist pretty quickly, and that has defined my adult life in ways that I think made me drift further and further away from having grown up in a military family and had that experience. So coming back to that with this work on moral injury It closes a certain kind of circle in my life where I'm much more aware of what it was like to grow up with someone who was a a veteran of war um, and also what I didn't understand that I wish I had understood when I was 16 and he came home from Vietnam.
0: There's a phrase that you used just a moment ago that, that has stuck with me uh, in, in the course of the conversation. The rest of us adapted and worried about him was what you just said a moment ago. And it, it, it makes me think of my my own experience in, in 12-step recovery. Um, there's, there's language around Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that alcoholism is a family disease and that there are family dynamics involved in this. And when you use the phrase that the rest of us adapted and worried about him – I guess my question would be, is moral injury an individual disease or is it a family disease? Is it a family dynamic that affects people beyond the person who has been injured?
1: Uh, I'd start by saying I don't think moral injury is a disease. I don't think it's a disorder. I don't think it's a sickness. I think it's a normal human response to extremity. So, yes, families also are facing extremity. They're facing the potential death. Of people in there that they love and they may uh, feel guilt for not paying enough attention to the danger there 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 are all kinds of ways in which families themselves uh, may struggle with moral questions about what to do and feel like they made bad choices that they didn't do enough to make sure the person was okay my friend Pamela whose son served in um, Iraq she hardly slept at all. She said she watched television day and night trying to see the bodies of people who were killed to make sure her son wasn't dead. She just was an incredible amount of stress the whole time and probably feels like that there should have been something she could have done and like get him out or something. Anyway, so she she struggled a lot with her own sense of inadequacy and guilt around um, having her son deploy. And I think families can have those experiences of it's also sometimes that families change because of deployments just as when people go off to war and are dramatically sometimes changed by their experience families also change and uh and some of that is is that their own sense of they're not doing enough or that they're doing bad they made bad choices is also part of the experience of families they may i think one of the um Worst kinds of moral injury a family can experience is wishing the person hadn't come home. And sometimes that happens for various reasons.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today to Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. Professor Brock is the director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I truly appreciate uh, what you just did there because when I made the characterization of moral injury as a disease, you corrected me. And I think that in that moment, uh, we demonstrated and modeled part of the, the larger problem that you're speaking about in this conversation. And that is when we hear about things like moral injury we may immediately reach for categories that are that we're used to and so classifying a person who is experiencing moral injury as deficient or diseased that that's the easy low hanging fruit and that's maybe one of the things that our society does in that in that polarity between the hero and the head case that we talked about a moment ago. And I so appreciate your willingness to say, no, it's not a disease. There's a better language to use here. And I, I, I wonder when, you, when you're engaged in this kind of dialogue with other people, that sounds like a very pastoral way of, of approaching the problem. And, and how has your training as a pastor helped to, to really inform the way that you talk about this and inform people about this concept of moral injury?
1: I'm not a pastor in a traditional sense. My um, status as a minister has to do with the work I'm doing as a theological educator and not as a a minister of a congregation. So my pastoral work has always been education. And um, in education, I think what I struggle with is trying to understand how other people are thinking about things um, in ways that limit what they can understand. And, and I think that it's a common thing. It's, it's not any particular single person's problem, but it's a common thing to um, have an idea of what's a normative person and then think anything outside that is diseased or problematic or deranged or a disorder. Rather than trying to understand the full range of human experiences experience and ways in which people's experiences change them. And so I, I just think from, from my own perspective, I don't know how I could think about somebody who had survived boot camp, which is no easy thing, survived boot camp and then gone into a war and managed to come back out alive and think that, that I'm going to think of them as somebody diseased I'm going to heal. This is a person who's who's undergone enormous testing and stress and has managed to come out alive. And not only could I learn something from that perhaps, but also uh, how could I expect them not to be dramatically changed by that experience? And part of what happens in that experience is the change is that you might not like yourself very much or you might have lost your sense of being a good or you've lost your innocence You've lost the person that went there. The person who came home. Um, I've heard so many vets that I don't even recognize the 18-year-old I was who went into the military, thinking they were going to be a hero or they were going to defend their country. And now um, I've had this experience, and I, I don't even know who that person is anymore. But these are um, these are no- these are normal experiences people have when when um, they walk through hell, as it were, and. Uh, so for me, um, normalizing that, saying, you know, th- this is a, this is just what happens to people. We need to give them space to talk about it because the way you integrate that experience, rather than have it control you, is you have to be able to talk to people about it. You have to be able to process it. So we do public education to help people learn what the path to recovery might be and how we can be part of it.
0: I appreciate your clarification that your ordination and your relationship to the pastorate has been uh, largely in an educational setting. Within the book, uh, Soul Repair, you follow uh, case studies of several different people that are connected to the military experience, both those that have gone to war themselves and those that have experienced others going to war as part of their families. And Two of those people in particular, and you, you mentioned some others, but two that you follow throughout the thread of the book are both people that have been ordained to the pastorate. So Herm, who works as a as a military chaplain, and Pamela, who is a minister in Atlanta. And so my question, since you've been working closely with people who are more uh, directly in the traditional pastoral experience, what are seminaries doing to address this concept of moral injury? And are seminaries doing a good job right now in preparing pastors to deal with the concept of moral injury, or is this even a conversation that's happening at seminaries at all?
1: Well, the term moral injury has only been uh, in the literature since the very end of 2009. So I think it's a little bit unfair to expect seminaries to suddenly have jumped on this and suddenly invented an educational program around it. I I do know that that Pamela Lightsey, the woman you were talking about, who's a United Methodist Minister, teaches at Boston University Theological School where she's a dean, and she and um, a theologian there named Shelley Rambo teach a regular course called War and the Human, and they deal a lot with trauma and moral injury in that course. I've even uh, Skyped in to do a lecture for that course on occasion. And they are actually teaching a shorter version of that course at our national conference in October um, in Kansas City at the end of October. Uh, so they, they have begun to do that at Boston University Theological School. I've talked to some of the faculty at Drew University Theological School that have been interested in the concept. I teach a regular intensive course here at Bright Divinity School. I've also taught it at Pacific School of Religion. We have had... Uh, for the past two years, the Soul Repair Center has uh, sponsored a think tank of 12 senior pastoral theologians in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity around the country at theological schools like ILIS in Denver, where I know a student who's doing a doctorate on moral injury. So, so we've had people, Eden Theological Seminary, San Francisco Theological Seminary, people in the think tank who are senior leaders in pastoral theology working on this, and most of them are either teaching a mini-course or giving a workshop at our conference in October that represents their work the past two years in looking at this moral injury piece. Uh, And one of them is um, Dr. Kristen Leslie, who's also a uh, minister. She's been working on military sexual trauma very intensively for the past three years. So there is is work on this being done, uh, but it's still really new, and... I would say that there's, I wouldn't say that there's like an extensive curriculum based on it yet at this point. There are increasing numbers of books and articles being written. If you go to our our Soul Repair Center website, which is just soulrepair.org, and look under resources, you will see a list of essays published by year. And if you look at 2009, there's one essay, and then in 2010, there are a few more And as each year moves forward, there are more and more resources being published on moral injury, a lot of it by the clinical community and the VA, but not entirely. Some of the pastoral theologians have also started to publish. So it's it's growing. We've been sponsoring some of that work and also benefiting from some of that work in other places.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock. She's a professor at Bright Divinity School in Texas and an expert on moral injury. Along with Dr. Gabriella Latini, she's co-author of the 2012 book Soul Repair, Recovery from Moral Injury After War. We'll be back in a moment. Each week, I hear from listeners who write in to say that they're enjoying the show And a lot of them ask me what they can do to help to support us. And first of all, I just want to let everyone know that we appreciate so much that you're listening, and thank you. The number one thing that you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. If you listen to us through iTunes, it would also be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review. And if you want to, you could give us money Earlier in the show, I talked about the partnership that we have with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. And so many good things come from this partnership. But one of the best, by far, is that your donations to our show are now tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today to Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. Professor Brock is the director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School in Texas. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair, In your book, Soul Repair, you and Gabriella Latini write that veterans and others who struggle with moral injury are struggling to recover their lost sense of humanity, which they require to reintegrate into the human community. And you you write, there's no easy shortcut that can bring them home. And you go on to say that repair from moral injury begins with outward expressions of an intense moral struggle. And I'm wondering if if you could describe for our listeners the process of soul repair, both this outward struggle and this this inward struggle that is going on.
1: Sure. I think I I forgot to mention in your question about the two in our book, Herm Kaiser, who was a military chaplain for 34 years. And I just wanted to to say that I've learned a lot from him uh, about what military chaplains do to guard the humanity of people they serve. And Herm was an astonishing chaplain, I think, because he paid close attention to helping people hold on to their humanity under inhuman conditions. That's, that's the struggle in the recovery process from moral injury is to help somebody reclaim their humanity. And by that, I mean their capacity to be open, to share feelings, to be vulnerable, and to be unafraid to talk about the worst things that ever happened to them. And that's that's a long process, but it takes some expression. It may not be in words. It may be in art. Uh, it may be in music. It's some way to externalize that inner anguish, that sense of I am not a good person, I don't deserve to live, I feel terrible, the good People died. I'm the one who survived. That makes me a bad person because I did bad things to survive. All of those things have to somehow find external expression because once they're outside, you can begin to think and reflect and look at them. When they're inside and they're not being expressed, they haunt you. They have this control over you. And the externalization, whether it's talking to a friend, talking to a group, writing a memoir lots of people write they call it writing your way back home that that writing process is part of the beginnings of the recovery process but to recover requires a community of people who care about you who begin to understand your humanity and help you hold on to it um, that you can make a contribution to so you know your life is worth something to other people that's the process of recovery You don't become a moral person when you're born by yourself. You don't invent your moral system. You learn it from the people who love and care about you. Rebuilding a moral system, rebuilding a new identity, requires the same thing, a community of people who love and care about you. And in that process, you can come to understand what happened to you. You will never forget it. It will always be probably a huge story in your life, but you can build a life out of that that can integrate it and remember it without it controlling and determining the rest of your life. And I think that's what recovery looks like. Recovery looks like somebody who says, this happened to me. I can talk about it, not to everybody, but I can talk about it to some people who care about me, and I understand what happened. I understand the things I did. And I'm going to learn from that. If, if I did these things, I'm going to try to make a positive contribution in the world as a way sometimes to make amends. But knowing this about myself helps me be a better person in the future, helps me be a better father, a better husband, a better mother, a better wife, a better sister, a brother, that knowing this, I can use this for good instead of having it destroy my life.
0: At several points in our conversation, you've pointed out that moral injury does not simply affect those that have gone to war. And as we've been talking about the consequences for sort of American society more generally, what comes up for me is when we look at city streets today, when we look at a militarized police force being deployed in places like Ferguson, Missouri, we're seeing things that on the domestic scale are playing out very much like war zones. And can we talk about moral injury for members of the police force? Can we talk about moral injury for those that have lived in extreme poverty or extreme deprivation? Is is it is it that general a term that we can use it for even situations like Ferguson and New York and others that we've seen in the last twelve months?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, the moral injury is a human experience. It's not unique to the military. There are plenty of people who work in professions like EMTs and medical caregivers and law enforcement and prison guards who uh, work under conditions that can be quite threatening and extreme, you can make a bad choice, uh, you can cause harm you wish you hadn't caused. The problem is that our whole society is set up like a war zone. Um, the courtroom is a win-lose proposition, and in order to win, you use all the kinds of things you do that people in wars use deception, silence. Um, the, the point of winning a court case is not getting the truth, but it's winning. And so it makes it really hard in those kind of contexts for anything ambiguous to come up. It's it's difficult, for example, for somebody in the medical profession who may feel terrible that they did something that was a, a huge mistake, uh, a misdiagnosis, a bad a mistake in the operating theater or whatever. Um, and they cause harm to a patient, but their insurance company and their hospital, whatever, want they they need to spin it in a way to protect the company. And so you can't then tell the truth. You you can't then apologize, uh, which may be the thing you really need to do for your soul. So I think we we also live within social structures and legal structures that are set up very adversarially So uh, there's hardly ever space for the restoration of a relationship that's been broken. Uh, We also set up oppressive conditions for people where they cannot make a good choice. They either heat their house or feed their children. I mean, there are all these horrible conditions of poverty and oppression. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. You're going to feel bad. And that's often what war is like. You often don't know when you're looking at someone whether they're going to shoot back or not. You have to make a decision they are or aren't, and you may make a decision they're not and wind up the person next to you gets shot, or you may shoot and discover you've killed an innocent person. You don't know what the outcome of your decision is going to be, but you just feel terrible no matter how it comes out. Life is like that a lot. I think it doesn't have to be as much like like that as it is because we create the social conditions that make making a moral choice difficult, making all choices bad, and you're having to make a choice that you think is the least bad choice, but you know you're going to feel bad no matter what. And I think we have a society that has a real hard time with that kind of ambiguity. We like winners and losers black and white and clean choices, and life mostly is not like that.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. We're speaking today about the concept of moral injury and its healing, which she and others refer to as soul repair. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Professor Brock, there's a conference coming up in October, at the end of October, the Pathways to Hope Conference in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm wondering if you could take a moment and uh, tell our listeners, if they were to attend this conference, what they would expect to find.
1: Uh, They would expect to find an enormous amount of information on what we call the invisible wounds of war. So we have information about PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and moral injury. They would also expect to find all kinds of resources for coping with it, recovery from it, all kinds of strategies and ways that people come to terms with moral injury. We have workshops on special populations like people in law enforcement, employers who want to create a more veteran-friendly workplace, families, women veterans, um, military sexual trauma. It's just a whole plethora of things that are related to inflicting moral injury and the process of recovery from moral injury. But it isn't uh, just for veterans, although that is certainly a major focus of the conference. We even have a workshop on moral injury in caregivers because trauma isn't individual. It's, It's a social thing. And if you're a caregiver and you can become overloaded with what you're carrying. And so, it will also help communities and congregations who um, want to understand more about moral injury to do better work in their own communities. It's not just veterans who experience moral injury. I think people carry in a society carry a lot of it and don't really have very many places to process it. and what i what I tell people is that if you can welcome people struggling with moral injury into your community it will make you a better community because people who are struggling with moral injury are the people who have consciences and actually care about the world around them and want to make a contribution.
0: You mentioned earlier in this conversation that work on moral injury and, and its understanding really began in earnest around 2009, and so it hasn't even been a decade that that, that, that the conversation and the work has been going on around this concept. But even in that short amount of time, I'm wondering if you could share with us how your work on moral injury has changed you.
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, There there are a couple of ways I've been changed. Um, One is that I've just learned an enormous amount about what military chaplains do and how important they are. Uh, in the work that they do in the military, uh, as well as understanding a lot more about military culture and the fine people who serve in the military. I have also changed my mind about the draft. During the Vietnam years, everybody I knew was worried about the draft and the lottery number they had. And so a lot of us worked really, really hard to try to get rid of the draft. And I've now concluded that that's been a mistake and that we really need a universal draft. And if you don't want to serve in the military, then there ought to be a way for you to be required to serve the common good in some way because I think that's probably an important responsibility of citizenship. So that's the way I've been changed. And my own relationship to my father has changed. He died a long time ago. 1976. And I was angry with him for the last eight years of his life because he was so different when he came home from Vietnam. So I was sad that he died, but I don't know that I spent a lot of time thinking about him or missing him because I was so angry with him. And doing this work on moral injury has helped me understand that the father I grew up with that I loved, is was still there when he came home. I just didn't understand how much he'd been changed by the experience in Vietnam. And I've come to miss him a lot. I've come to wish he'd lived longer and that we could have somehow restored some aspect of our relationship. And I don't know that I would have said five years ago that I miss my father, but I do.
0: When you work on these questions of moral injury, you're working on things that are taking you to the depths of an individual's most traumatic moments. And it also, as we've talked about in the conversation, opens us up to the failures of society to be able to hear and listen and reintegrate uh, individuals who've been traumatized into a moral structure. When you're working with all of these very negative aspects of this concept of moral injury, what continues to give you hope?
1: I don't experience the work I do on moral injury as experiencing negative things. Um, what I experience when I'm talking to a veteran I care about um and they're telling me things that they struggle with, I experience that as a sort of enormous gift that they're that they trust me they're willing to be present and that I can maybe help a little bit to carry this awful burden they've been carrying. And there's something to me heartening about the, the struggle of conscience in terribly ambiguous and awful conditions, um, the struggle with regret, the struggle with shame, that this is a powerful witness to the intractability of moral conscience, that that the worst things that human beings have invented to wreck a conscience can't wreck it. It can wreck a person, it can wreck a life, but that part of the wrecking is that the conscience will not let them go. And I find that extraordinarily heartening. But I've done work like this for a long time in my life. I used to do domestic violence and rape crisis work. I wrote a book on prostitution in 1996 with my friend Susan Thistlethwaite, in which we walked the streets of Shinjuku and Bangkok and Chicago and Los Angeles. And we it's pretty awful stuff that you find there, The sort of strange and awful things that human beings are willing to can do to each other, and yet um, the quality of smartness and resilience we found in people who walked who who were sex workers w- was really heartening it 's a strange thing to say, i guess but i I guess i've never felt like whatever happens to human beings is strange to me that i that these these places of extremity can also uh, the extraordinarily illuminating about the um, quality of humanity that can endure in the face of any, this, these awful, awful things. So I don't find it, it, it. It's hard. It's not. It's not easy to go through these things. But I. It, I, it doesn't uh, feel negative or defeating to me. It is what heartens my spirit and um, makes me appreciate the value of being a human being.
0: Well, Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock, just on a personal level, I I very much appreciate the work that you've been doing around this issue, and I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: The Reverend Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock is Research Professor of Theology and Culture and Founding Director of the Soul Repair Center at Bright Divinity School. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kegia, Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Ables, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. Hello. uh, David Dalt here. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, The show is not quite done. As promised, we have a little bit of extra audio for you. Uh, This is a piece that was made by our good friend, the independent uh, producer, Katie Cloxon, who lives here in Chicago. And we've been talking to Katie for the past couple of months about what it might be like to produce a narrative Type of uh, podcast in addition to the interview podcast that we do here on Things Not Seen. We're still playing with the format and the idea. This is really more of a pilot to test things out than it is a final finished product about what the new show would be like. But we're trying to tell stories about the Chicago area and about religious life uh, across the Midwest and really religious life here in the United States uh, in ways that involve very personal stories. Now, this story is one that Katie pitched to us, and she got it because she, she grew up going to this church. It's a Unitarian church, and she, she was watching this church struggle around the recent events in Ferguson, and it's a mostly white church, but they're, they're, they were struggling with whether or not they should put up a banner that said Black Lives Matter, and so she wanted to really tell that story from the inside out. Now, I realize that this is a charged political issue for many and perhaps for some of our listeners. And we're not taking a political side by presenting this so much as we want to explore what's going on behind the scenes, the, the motivations and the struggles that uh, any religious community goes through when it talks about public witness. And so without further ado, uh, we're going to present this piece by uh, Katie Cloxon, and we thank her again for taking the time to put it together. And we look forward in the next few weeks and months to sharing more of her work and the work of other producers as we figure out this new format. If you have feedback about this piece, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can get in touch with us through Facebook or you can uh, reach us on the World Wide Web through our website, thingsnotseenradio.com.
2: My name is the Reverend Brett Lortie. I'm the senior minister of the Unitarian Church of Evanston.
3: So Unitarian Universalism is based in seven principles. The first and probably best known is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And the others really flow from that.
2: And so when you start there, uh, matters of individual belief are personal to people. And what really matters is what we do together to make the world a better place for everybody.
4: The Ferguson incident sort of kicked everything off.
2: Incidents like Michael Brown's murder and Frederick Gray in Baltimore, it's happening over and over and over again.
3: There were so many well-publicized cases of people being killed by
5: police. Eric Garner in New York, just hearing that story of him saying that he couldn't breathe over and over again,
6: and when you think about, you know, he was selling loose cigarettes? How How is this response by the police justified?
3: It was heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak.
6: Walter Scott.
3: Dominique Franklin.
5: Rekia
2: Boyd. Boyd. Frederick Gray. Eric Garner. Michael Brown.
3: Tamir Rice.
5: It's easy to brutalize someone when you don't even see them as a human being.
6: How do we not recognize the inherent worth and dignity of every human being? It is so fundamental.
4: I think that there was a lot of conversation around trying to figure out what what, what do we do? You could sit and stew and get angry and be indignant and self-righteous, and that is one of the things I sort of appreciate about the, the Unitarians, that that is not a space that... People are encouraged to stay in. You know, it's more what, what do you want to do with that? And not even what do you want to do, sort of what constructive thing can you do with that?
3: There's a group called RUU Awake, which is Unitarian Universalists around the country who are working to get our denomination to pay greater attention to the need for racial justice in our own congregations and in the world. And one of the things that they asked us to do after the Ferguson verdict, soon after the Ferguson verdict, um, they put out a call for congregations to install signs saying Black Lives Matter. So our process of deciding about a sign at the Unitarian Church of Evanston requires a congregational vote because it's a big deal to put up a public sign.
2: We went through a congregational process of town hall meetings, both formal and informal conversations around uh, what what does that mean? People did ask questions. People asked good
3: questions. If we're going to put up this sign, how are we going to stand behind that? And then also some good logistical questions about, you know, is it legal to put it on the law? You know, just kind of basic things. Why black
2: lives matter? Why not all lives matter? Probably
5: the primary argument that came up was, well, why wouldn't we say all lives matter? Which is a a sentiment that I shared when I first heard that conversation come up.
3: In the very, very beginning, uh, it seemed to me kind of almost reverse racism.
5: A response that I read to that was, to say all lives matter is another way of just erasing black lives. And that really made sense to me. I love it. I think it is one of the best things that has ever happened because it it just has sparked so much conversation, you know, especially when people want to say, well, all lives matter. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. All lives should matter.
2: Of course all lives matter. And yet Black lives right now don't seem to matter. Based on the evidence, and based on the brutality, and based on media coverage, you know, across the board. And so society does seem to need a reminder. Black lives matter.
6: It takes 20% of our membership to have quorum, and that meant 84 people had to show up, while 175 people showed up.
2: So the
5: tension was in that room. I mean, we all sort of, I think everybody sort of felt this, like, how's this going to go? And is somebody going to say something that's going to really hurt And then the vote, it was put to the vote, and every green card, the voting card in the room, went up.
6: You know, Unitarians pride themselves on being independent thinkers, so we almost never have unanimous votes. Well, this vote was unanimous.
5: And it was just such an emotional moment. That's never happened before. We've never had a unanimous vote.
2: The church doesn't like to put banners out. But for this, everyone said yes. We were rushing to get the sign up before the stand against racism that happens every year along Ridge Avenue, sponsored by the YWCA.
6: So we had to hurry up and get the sign made and put up.
3: There's four or five people that are engineer-type people that, if you will they can kind of take on a project and get things like that done so the other two or three people were out of town maybe <laughs> so i got the call saying hey can you help us with installing the sign
2: i was surprised when it went up i i was picturing a couple stakes and kind of a flimsy little sign i was not when they started drilling holes <laughs> i was wow this is a big sign It is about 10 feet by 4 feet.
3: It says Black Lives Matter in very large, clear letters. And then there's a small chalice, the Unitarian Church of Evanston logo, at the bottom right and left corner.
4: So I have to say, when I first saw the sign, I thought, wow, that is a really big sign.
2: It's substantial, it doesn't look like it's moving anywhere, and I think that's the thing I like most about the sign.
4: I definitely feel a sense of pride that our church community has taken a very public stand. One of my first feelings was I was a little scared. I was like, "Wow, how are we going to? Are, are we sure we can live into this sign?" And in being a very monocultural, very white church. You have to be careful that you're not just putting the sign up to feel better about yourself. And uh, and you can't put the sign up and think that that's it. Putting a sign up is no, in no way, shape, or form sufficient.
5: I think what's been on my mind is what what do we do beyond the sign?
3: We don't want it to be merely a hollow gesture. I'm part of the Peace and Justice Committee but I'm also part of a small working group that is planning a strong series of events in the next year to strengthen our cultural capacity, our understanding, our knowledge of how in this country we got to this messed up place that we're at, and what we can do about it.
5: We have a a deep and growing relationship with Community Renewal Society, which is a faith-based community organizing body that promotes economic and racial justice.
3: I really feel that we're at a turning point, and we have this great opportunity, and many of us within the denomination are embracing that opportunity. It feels that we will move into this century as it unfolds in a way that increases justice and increases love.
0: Thanks to all of our interviewees, the Reverend Brett T, Christine Ollender, Doug Erickson, Eileen Wiviet, Gail Smith, Carrie Avery and Tony Galson, Melissa Blunt and Steve Sarakaku. Music by Poddington Bear, Moby, and Winley. This story was produced by Katie Clarkson, a radio producer who grew up attending the Unitarian Church in Evanston. And again, if you have a chance, we'd love to hear what you think about this So reach out to us and let us know. Uh, You can email us at thingsnotseenradio.com or you can get in touch with us through Facebook.